Welcome to the Human Flourishing Project. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today's episode is titled Recalibrating Standards of Success. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. First, uh, just I want to thank people, a bunch of you who listen to this show. I was at the annual Ayn Rand Institute Objectivist Conference this year in Cleveland. I gave some speeches on Sunday, and actually one of them I got some interesting follow-up questions that I'll talk about at the end of this episode. So I spoke about the forthcoming, at some point, version of a new version of my book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and then also I gave a talk on intellectual persuasion, which I got some interesting questions about. But also when I was at that event, many of you, dozens, I think, came up to me and, and specifically said how much you enjoy this show, The Human Flourishing Project, and... I was very grateful for that, and I find that motivating, and I'm, I'm certainly glad that people who have been positively influenced by Ayn Rand, as have I, find this show very useful. So thanks to everyone who came up to me. I really appreciate that. So this week is going to be a pretty short core episode because I also want to get to some questions that I got about uh, intellectual persuasion, but... There is, is one point that I've been thinking about and having some conversations about this week that I thought would be useful, and that is recalibrating standards of success. So I, I uh, had a visitor this week, my sister Catherine, who's a doctor and is very interested in psychology and is actually going into psychiatry. So we had a lot of interesting discussions. And one, one idea that came up when we were having discussions is what I'll call recalibrating standards of success. So I'll give you two examples, the, the two most prominent examples on my mind. So one one thing we were talking about was how easy it is for people to be, particularly a certain kind of person, to be very busy and to be overworked and overwhelmed and for that to be a condition for, for years and years and years, if not decades and decades and decades. And people will just be saying all the time, like, I'm busy and overwhelmed. And there's something, there might be certain pleasant things going on, but there's something unpleasant about being overwhelmed. I think that's, that's inevitable. And I was reflecting on how when I get overwhelmed now, I have a, I have a certain view of it that I didn't used to have. So when I used to get overwhelmed, I would mostly regard this as a virtue. I would think of it as, well, I'm doing all this stuff and that's a good thing. And in fact, I quote unquote should be doing even more. And this was just a recipe for being just overworked all the time and dissatisfied. And in the last several years in particular, I think I've had the idea that wait, that is actually a failure in a very real way because what's happening is if I'm I'm working in a way where I, I continuously feel overwhelmed and overworked, that's not that enjoyable and I'm trying to enjoy my life. And so if, if, if that's my chronic experience of work, then I'm not succeeding. And what I, what I think of this as is, is I realize that oh, over the time I've calibrated I've recalibrated my standard of success in terms of productivity from one where it is, it was really focused on maximum output as some sort of end in itself versus one where it's, it's something more like uh, enjoyable output. 
and there are different ways of thinking about this and, and exactly how to name it, but the broader idea is hu- the, the title of this podcast, Human Flourishing. So it, the idea is I want to think about, okay, what, what, what experience of productivity do I want to have in my life? What do I consider the role of productivity in a flourishing life? And it, it can't be that's all that I ever do. And I'm just only producing things. And then when I'm not producing things, then I'm somehow doing something wrong. And then at the same time, I definitely want, I want to create as part of my life. And I think there are very fundamental reasons why that's key to a satisfying life, but it has to be in the context of where the creation is enjoyable. And part of that is that it has, it's integrated with a certain amount of rejuvenation and recreation. And on the show, I've talked about the idea of relaxed productivity, which is one way I try to capture the way I want to experience work. But the point I want to emphasize today is just it's super, super helpful to change one's standard of success and failure because I think sometimes people will hold it as, yeah, you know, I should probably should relax. I should probably relax more, but they still view it as, oh, I'm I'm a success if I'm doing more. Like if I'm doing more, you know, who could question that? Like I, I'm I'm on the right path versus no, there's something really wrong if I'm overworked. And I, I would qualify this and say that this is particularly true at a certain stage of career. So I'd say once you are doing the work, at least a lot of the work that you really want to be doing in your life, and then once you can get paid for it decently, then it should really be a problem if it's just continuously experienced as overwork. Because the way I think of it now is I know quite well what type of work I want to be doing. At least I think I do. Uh, for as long as I'm alive. And so when I think of it that way, I think of, okay, now I want, I want to do that in a way where I can create the things I want to create and where I can, I can find it very satisfying to do and where I can enjoy myself and enjoy the rest of my life. And so when, when something comes up, like if I have a choice of setting a deadline and I set a deadline that's just super, super aggressive and it's just going to, a lot of things are going to break in my life or become less enjoyable, but oh, it'll, it'll be good to hit this deadline. Now I think of that as, no, that is a that is a mistake. And part of it is I'm in this for the long haul. I'm not, I don't need, I'm not rushing one thing to get on to another life that will then allegedly be perfect, which I think is often the way people view it. Like, okay, I'm just going to do this one thing and I'm going to kill myself over this one thing. And then I'm going to exist in some sort of paradise later. And I believe the second episode of the Arnold Bennett uh, Wisdom of Arnold Bennett series that I did, he uh, that I I give some good quotes from him. I think it's in the second one. It might be in the first, but about just how how much th- that's a wrong view that that oh I'm gonna I'm gonna suffer now for the future. I think it's it's by far most justified if I have the idea of I need to do I really to to do something that I really want to be doing a lot of. There's some I need to invest now in doing certain things that I'd like to do less of. And so I'm willing to, I'm willing to make that happen or, or, and, or it could be, well, I'm not, I'm not at the level yet where I can get paid for it. So I need to work really, really intensely at it, like more than I would otherwise do, because once I get to a certain point, then, then I can really have something that is enduring 
and that can sustain me. So I think of when I worked on the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, I did that on a very, very aggressive timetable. Part of the justification was, well, once once I do this, it'll open up a whole bunch of other things. And that's true. But I remember when doing it, I thought, okay, you can do it this time, but it can't be if, if every project is like this, there's going to be a problem because some parts of that were very enjoyable, but other parts were very, very stressful. And I would rather not have a whole bunch of that. Of course, sometimes I'll want it, but I really need to make sure this is this is what I want. So again, the overall idea here is that I was able to recalibrate my standard from one where I felt good when I, or at least felt less bad when I was just working all the time, working more and more, to one where I felt good where, no, I'm, I'm, I feel good if I'm creating the kind of value that I want to create and getting paid for it and doing it in the context of an enjoyable and, and I would say fundamentally relaxed life. So that's one example of recalibrating standards of success. Another one is when I think about recreational activities. And this has been a a perennial subject on this podcast. I've talked about, for example, I had an episode on, I forget what the episode was called, but I talked about the idea of eight plus activities. So activities that are an eight or more out of 10. And I might have even mentioned the following example, but I think it'll be useful in this context of recalibrating standards of success which is, lost my train of thought for one second. It, oh, it has to do with when, when, I'm, when I'm thinking of, okay, what do I want to do with my recreational time that I set myself, particularly on the weekends? It's good to have, this is a slightly different kind of standard, and I think both are useful. So one is you can have an abstract standard of, yeah, I want to do things that could be eight plus out of 10, or I want to do things that are truly you know, that I that I truly will be glad that I did or that I can truly enjoy in the moment. There are different ways of thinking about it. In this case, I find particularly useful to think about a concrete standard. So in this case, I think of it as the going to the beach and going in the water in particular and lying in the sand and taking a walk. Because those are things, all things I really, really like to do. I like to go in the water and the ocean in particular, and I like to walk, and I like to lie in the sand, I like to walk, and also uh, one wheel, and particularly I like, well, I really like one wheeling on the sand and in certain other places, but let's just take those those examples of the water and lying on the beach and taking a walk. And for me, taking a walk pretty much anywhere, because I just, I always find that if I take a walk, and I, I, get, I had an episode about altitude walks, I like taking walks, I like just reflecting on things, I like thinking of new ideas, that's just something that I pretty much always enjoy and never regret. So it's really good, and I find it very, very useful when I'm thinking about activities to think about, okay, how does this compare to going in the water or lying on the sand or taking a walk? having those as concrete instances of the kind of recreational life that I have, because I might think, oh yeah, there's some, there's some dinner that I'm invited to. And it might don't, after I say this, don't not invite me to dinners necessarily, but it might just be something where I think, yeah, that's, that, that sounds okay, but it doesn't sound as good. I would rather be on the beach. And well, guess what? At least where I live, I can be on the beach and whatever you really like where you live, you can do that. And other other examples are just reading really interesting ideas. That's something I have almost an infinite appetite for. So 
when I have, when I calibrate myself and I say, okay, I want to be doing things like, like going in the ocean and lying on the beach and taking a walk and going one wheeling, those kinds of things, then it, it functions as a, it helps me, it helps me really measure different activities and say, yeah, you know what? That one is like watching this show. Like I don't want to do that. And I might never want to do it because there are things that are more enjoyable. Now there can be other, or I might never, there are certain people I might never want to hang out with them. And it's not, it's not that I'm against the person. It's just that there's a pretty high bar because I'm not alive for that long. And there are only, there are only so many days and so many hours. And so I might as well do the things I really like. And having this kind of standard is, I find to be very useful Versus if I just, if, if I just have it on a more abstract level, yeah, my time is limited. I find that that can be harder to, to leverage concretely. Whereas if I have this kind of concrete, these co- concrete examples that can serve as a standard, then I become much more ambitious with my time. So that's, that's today's topic, recalibrating standards, standards of success. Now I want to answer some questions that came up in response to my speech on intellectual persuasion. So I'll I'll summarize briefly what I talked about. I don't know if and when that will be available publicly, but there is a speech online called Intellectual Persuasion by me. So if you just search Intellectual Persuasion Alex Epstein, and it doesn't, it's not the same speech. And in a sense, this, the current one is a little bit more evolved, but if you combine what was in that speech with some of the earlier podcasts that I've done on persuasion and explanation, you'll you'll get much of what I covered. But just to give you a quick quick overview of what I covered. So the three big concepts I covered I call context bridging, framing, and opinion stories. And the context here is with I, I these are all means to intellectual persuasion. So intellectual persuasion I think of as how to persuade somebody of an idea that I believe is true that the person expects to disagree with. So how to persuade somebody of an idea that I believe is true that the person expects to disagree with. And this is quite a difficult thing. And I, I shared, which I've shared on on earlier podcasts, that context bridging is, is the mental model I use for intellectual persuasion. The basic idea is that a context in, in this context is the sum of things you know or think you know. So you think of it as the other person has a, on a given topic, so it might be fossil fuels or um, you know vaccination or anything else, anything else you're trying to persuade somebody on, they have a context of this is what they know or think they know, including what arguments they've been exposed to, and then I want to bring them closer to what I know or think I know. And the idea is that, okay, to 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 bridge that gap, there are three types of things I can be doing. I can be adding knowledge that they don't have. I can be sub- trying to subtract things that they believe that aren't true, and maybe most importantly, I can modify. So I can have something they believe that's partially true, but isn't uh, isn't fully true. So if you take like a vaccination, let's say a doctor is trying to convince a patient to vaccinate their child, and the the patient might say, "Yeah, well, vaccines have side effects," and the doctor might say, "Yeah, that, well, that's true, but those side effects are not nearly." as risky as not vaccinating. So they'd be taking something that there's a partial truth, but they'd be modifying it into a a full truth. So listen to the other stuff for more on that. And I talk about how the second concept was framing. And so the idea with framing is that 
often you'll find that with context bridging that there's a lot of there's a big gap between where someone is and where you are uh, and where you want them to be and often what's going on is that there are different what we can call fundamentals that people have so different kinds of method thinking methods that they're using or assumptions that they have or values that they have and those are actually what's creating the huge gap and but conversely if you can get agreement about okay here are the thinking methods we should use or here are the assumptions that you know here let's let's look at what our assumptions are and let's look at what our values are then we can make a lot of difference. So let's say if a doctor's trying to convince on the vaccination, it might be, well, hey, there's an assumption that being natural is healthy. And then you could say, well, like, let's look at that. No, it's actually being natural is often unhealthy. And so we don't want to be focused on doing the natural thing. We want to do the thing that's good for our health, which is often uh, artificial. So that would be an example of an assumption. Or you might have with a method, you could see, oh, somebody's only looking at the side effects of the vaccine and not the benefits. And you could say, well, wouldn't you agree that you should look at both the benefits and the side effects? And most people will agree. And then what you've done is you've framed the discussion. So you've created you've created certain fundamentals explicitly. So you, you've made these methods or assumptions or values explicit and you've gotten agreement on them. And that makes everything else easier. So the, again, this is a very quick summary. So look, look to the other resources for more on that. And then I talked about opinion stories and the idea with opinion stories is this is a very effective way of introducing my overall argument, including framing. So if I, t- if I tell the story of how I came to the opinion, including the uncertainty that I experienced or the confusion that I experienced, that can be a much more effective way of introducing an idea to somebody than just declaring that it's true. So the doctor might tell the story of how, how they were confused about vaccines and then you know, they were concerned about certain side effects, but then they, they looked at the facts in a certain way. And with and question certain assumptions, and then they came to the truth. So hopefully that is coherent for those of you who have heard nothing but this episode. But again, I would encourage listening to earlier episodes. Okay, so we got a couple of questions. And um, okay, well, you guys, I apologize that I did not get uh, I did not write down the names of the people who asked questions. So I apologize, but you'll recognize your your questions and hopefully you don't mind the anonymity. So one, here's one set of questions and then there was another question. So one question is what tools do you use to uncover a framework? So I I often think of a framework in terms of people's methods, assumptions, and values. And so the way I'll uncover a framework is I'll either ask them or ask myself what methods, assumptions, or values does the person have or have they been exposed to? So if you're thinking about the vaccine issue, I know that people have been exposed to the idea that that natural equals healthy. And so that I would need to challenge that kind of assumption. I would also know that there's a tendency for certain, particularly with people for the, with that assumption, to only look at negative side effects and not to look at benefits. So I would have the idea that, okay, that's not... that that needs to be addressed. Now, the easiest way to uncover a particular person's framework is to talk to them and you can get a sense of, okay, what methods, assumptions, and values does the person have? And you want to establish, this will go to the next question actually, but you want to establish 
you want to challenge anything that you think you can effectively challenge, and then you want to reinforce anything that you think you can effectively reinforce. The next question is, how do you evaluate whether the framework you have established is complete enough? Does it have to cover enough of the concretes that consist of the context? So yeah, how, how do you know whether the framework you've established is is complete enough? So one thing is that with framing, the thing that works really, framing works really well when there's some sort of issue of method or assumption or value that is pretty easy to convince the person of. And then once they have it, then that will, that structure, having that as part of the structure of, of the discussion will make everything else easier. So if they have the idea of, oh yeah, I need to look at the benefits and side effects of everything, not just the benefits of some and the side effects of others. Yeah, they'll, that's a really valuable thing. And most people will agree to that, but you don't always, sometimes a fundamental can be very, very hard to establish. So I'll switch, I'll switch examples. But so let's say that, so let's say that there's a career decision and I'm talking to somebody about their career and they say, Hey, my mom wants me to become a doctor. I don't really want to do that. And, you know, I'm not sure what to do. My mom really wants it. And she says she would be happy. Now, one way to look at that, one premise that I have that would be a relevant fundamental is I believe in rational selfishness. So I believe that I believe that it's possible for individuals to be selfish in a way where everyone can pursue their own happiness in harmony uh, so long as they don't demand, you know, unjust sacrifices by others. So I don't, so in my view, somebody else saying, hey, I'm going to be unhappy if you do this thing that I don't want you to do, but that's, you know, that you want to do and that's actually good for your life. Like, I don't consider that a valid argument. I don't place any weight on that. And I think that that if if a parent is doing that, the parent should be ashamed of themselves. And if they're really doing it, I mean, it's, it, that's different if they think, oh, you know, Johnny, you really like love medicine and I have this idea on that and it doesn't seem like like for some reason you're doing this other thing that you don't really want to do. But often this just comes up as the parent has an agenda and it's not really about the child. And and so my view, my ethical view there is, no, you should not listen to that at all. Like that should have zero standing. But even some of you listening to that might say, well, no, I wouldn't go that far. Like that's that's wrong. So in that case, if I said, hey, like wouldn't you agree that you should be rationally selfish, the person, they would disagree. A lot of people disagree with that fundamental. And that's a, that's a complicated issue to explain. And it's def- definitely very controversial. So what becomes tricky with fundamental issues is where the fundamental issue is more controversial than the specific issue under discussion. So what I, when I'm framing something, I want to be looking for fundamentals that are less, that are less controversial than the issue under discussion, but that can help me clarify the issue under discussion. So if I'm talking about the career issue, I might say, hey, like, okay, do you believe that you should look at the pros and cons of every option? And they'd probably say yes. And so then they would list out pros and cons. Now, some of them would be, they'd be measuring it as, oh, well, my mom will be upset and that's a con. And I don't think you should measure it that way, but at least at least they would lay them all out. And then I would think they would they would probably see, oh wait, this doctor thing is gonna make me totally miserable. 
again, if that's not what they want to do. And, and yes, even if this person is upset and I wish they weren't upset, like like it's, it's a really bad deal for me to sacrifice my whole life because of this desire uh, of somebody. So that I could establish, Hey, look at the pros and cons and maybe they're not doing that. And then that would help frame it. Or another thing I might do is is talk about an issue of, of fairness. So I might say, well, would you agree that it's not fair to make someone do something that will make them miserable? So you could say, and I would say, well, if it's not fair for your mom to make you do something that will make you miserable, right? And I think most people would agree with that as a, as a fundamental, that it's an idea that, yeah, it's wrong to, to insist that somebody do something that will make them miserable, like that you're, you're exploiting them, you're, you're taking advantage of them, you're harming them. So those are two examples of fundamentals where I could establish them and that would help clarify the issue. There would be a lot of leverage. Whereas if I picked something that was more controversial than the issue at stake, then that becomes a mess because then I have to talk about that issue. This, this actually comes up quite a bit, so I'm glad this question came up, that you want to think about what, what fundamentals can you establish that will make it easier to explain something, not that will make it harder. The next question is, also this seems applicable for technical presentations. Have you experienced it being used there? Uh, a little bit. I mean, my my role in the technical world, is my, my technical life insofar as, as it existed was when I was in high school and college and doing like some research projects and some computer science and working at a software company. So I haven't, I wouldn't say I've done much technical presentations in, in a pure sense, but definitely, I think it's easiest to do framing in a technical presentation because in a technical context, people tend to be more explicit, at least about methods and assumptions. So if you just take a, a given field, um, you could say, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, now this isn't, you wouldn't call this a technical field, maybe, but I'd say martial arts. There's a guy named John Danaher, who's a philosopher, who's made, like, helped a lot with people's understanding of Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular, which is, you know, a, a martial art that I am very fond of and that I think is very effective. So he might say something like, hey, in effect, he'll, he'll sometimes say something to the effect of, well, when I'm looking at moves, at what moves to teach people, I look at moves that have a very high don't don't attribute this exactly to him but like that have a very high degree of success at all levels of competition and against all body types. So he'll say something like and that's that's a method premise that hey when he is looking for techniques here's what he does versus people who just look for things that are flashy or who just or that just work on beginners. And when he frames that then that that that's a kind of technical framing and then that that gives credence to everything else he's talking about. So that was from the first person. So thank you for asking those questions. And the second one is from another person. Here's a question, Alex. Do you think that your approach to bridging the context with your audience in order to enhance persuasion has applicability in increasing the effectiveness of teaching? I've noticed teachers of all kinds, math, philosophy, martial arts, etc., frustrated and disappointed when they realize how little of what they thought they had conveyed is successfully understood by their students. Is it possible that more attention on context bridging might help close this gap? Definitely yes, although there's another issue too. So I would think of it as, when I think of context bridging, that is just 
that's just what's really required to explain something clearly to someone at a certain starting point. You have to know what do I need to add, what do I need to subtract, what do I need to modify, including what fundamentals or framework can I establish to uh, so that so that they can really get as much context as possible on a given point. That is, and that is just a failure that that doesn't happen. People rarely get all the steps, and then the steps aren't explained clearly, and people don't address arguments that year. So on one level, if that changed, it would be amazing. I mean, just people are just constantly being given conclusions that they are not given the context, you know, the necessary context for. But there's another issue too, which I've, which I'm interested in and don't feel like I have nearly the competence in yet, which is there's a whole frontier of retention. How do you give people retention? How do you explain things in a way that they can actually retain? And one article that I read recently that, if you're interested in this kind of thing, is worth reading, is an article called Why Books Don't Work, and it's by someone named Andy Matushak, and his last name is M-A-T-U-S-C-H-A-K. And what he does, he examines both books and lectures, and he talks about how it's really remarkable how little people retain, and he starts exploring why that is and then giving giving some leads as to how to, to do it. I think, though, what's most promising is just his explanation of the problem is pretty compelling. And this is, this, it's, again, a frontier that I'm interested in, and I would like to, I would like to learn more about whether from the examples of people who've done it well or maybe from my own discovery because it's it's just so important that the person actually retain things but context bridging is really focused on are you are they ever clear on it ever like to do that you need to context bridge and then there's a question of how do you how do you give it in a form that is retainable and that could amount to making sure you give the right number you, you don't explain too many things at once or you give you repeat yourself in a certain way or you ask them certain questions of retention. There are all sorts of interesting things on this frontier. And and I again, that article on why books don't work is, uh, I found it r- really interesting in that respect. One other thing I should mention on the issue of intellectual persuasion is that at my talk, I mentioned and, and I shared a certain tool that I find very helpful for quickly for quickly figuring out ways to explain issues to people, and I call it the Extreme Clarity Tool. And you can find this online. I've put up a link to it at tinyurl.com slash extreme clarity. So tinyurl.com slash extreme clarity. Okay, that is it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com or, better yet, post on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash humanflourishingproject. Also, to get weekly updates on when these new episodes come out, go to humanflourishingproject.com. That's it for this week. Thanks again for everyone who thanked me in person for the show. I really appreciate that. Uh, Everyone else, I will be back next week or at the latest the week after. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been the Human Flourishing Project.